This podcast is brought to you by the Transitional Justice Institute at Ulster University. Learn more about our work, including our taught postgraduate programmes in gender, conflict, transitional justice and human rights at www.transitionaljustice.ulster.ac.uk. Good afternoon, everybody. You're very welcome to the Transitional Justice Institute for this, our third seminar of our series reflecting on 20 years of women, peace and security. My name is Catherine O'Rourke. I'm TJI director and I'm also convening our seminar series. I'm really pleased today to be able to welcome our former TJI colleague and, and current associate professor uh, at Durham University, Catherine Turner, who's going to talk about today about the issue of women mediators and WPS. As Catherine will outline, the question of women mediators has really become very prominent in the last short while in the WPS agenda. It's, it's an area in which we see increasing profile and resources. And Catherine brings a really interesting perspective to this question because her background is originally in mediation. Um, she's, And in fact, she has come to WPS by means of mediation and her interest in research in mediation. So she brings, I think, a particularly interesting um, set of perspectives on the question. Uh, she is also a practitioner in mediation and brings those insights as well. So Catherine, we're very happy to welcome you back to TJI, very happy to include you in our seminar series, and thank you for contributing. And we look forward to hearing your reflections and contributions today. You know, by way of framing to make sure we're all on the same page, I wanted to highlight just the two key um, aspects that have framed my work in respect of um, women mediators um, and their place within the field of mediation more broadly. Um, so that the normative assumptions, I suppose, that are brought in, in respect of this coming from 1325 initially. So the recognition um, that we need to understand the impact of armed conflict on women and girls um, and that there's a need for uh, effective institutional arrangements to guarantee protection and participation um, that can contribute to the, to the maintenance and the promotion of international peace and security. Okay, so mediation, um, obviously a, a key uh, function of international peace and security outside of Chapter 7, but nevertheless linked uh, with peace and security in, in the United Nations Charter through Chapter 6. Um, so, so the idea that... Uh, that we need to have arrangements to, to ensure the participation of women um, and also um, that women play an important role in the prevention and resolution of conflicts and peace building um, and so uh, mediation as a, as a mechanism if you like of conflict prevention uh, but more significantly in this context of, of conflict resolution um, and the need to um, increase women's role um, and enhance it within um, peacemaking more generally. Um, so from that uh, normative agenda I think it's worth, um, in this context, starting with, with some of these assumptions and how they've developed that you'd be familiar with, but just in, in terms of uh, locating it within the, the debate on mediation. The way, uh, particularly in, in training things, so the way this tends to be narrated and the way that I see this being narrated, particularly in, in training for women um, in respect of mediation and participation in, in peace processes, is that we begin with the normative commitment that's made in 1325. And you're familiar with the background of that and where the normative commitment comes from, but the, nevertheless, that's where it is. And that's the baseline of, of why we're including women in mediation processes, um, which moves on then to the importance of women's participation. Uh, in conflict prevention and um, resolution. So we're very much in mediation working in the, in the participation pillar um, of women, peace and security. And then this is linked 
I think almost in a linear fashion in the mediation uh, literature with gender sensitive conflict analysis and process design, which in turn then is deemed to lead to um, improved gendered outcomes and implementation. Okay, so um, we see uh, you know, that the links um, effectively being made between the element of participation and having more women in mediation um, with gender sensitivity and then ultimately um, the outcome that that's going to achieve. Okay? And as I say, most often I saw that um, narrated as a, as a linear uh, kind of process that the participation inevitably leads to gender sensitivity. Okay. Um, whereas I mean that, that I think that for women who've experienced being part of these processes and for those of us who, who study it, I think the um here we go. The link <laughs> the link isn't necessarily as, as linear as that or shouldn't necessarily be as, as clear. Um, so we we have these two separate elements that particularly in the context of mediation need to be separated out. The idea of participation and having women in processes. Um, and separately, the idea of gender-sensitive <coughs> process design, and that it's these two elements together that ideally, um, if it works, are going to lead to improved outcomes for women. Okay? So, my key uh, critique today isn't necessarily this assumption of improved outcomes for women. Um, are they familiar with? You know, the, the, the sort of consequentialist argument that the reason that we include women is that, first of all, they will bring a gender sensitive um, approach to mediation and that as a result, then the, um, the processes will be more sustainable and that they will um, have more gender sensitive outcomes reflected in the agreements. And so um, we have very strong uh, international policy campaigning around uh, effects of uh, sustainability of peace agreements. The figure of uh, agreements that include women um, are likely to be 35% more sustainable, for example, uh, but not always borne out with uh, empirical evidence to test the claim. But what I'm specifically interested in is this relationship between participation and gender-sensitive process design um, and the way in which that has really shaped uh, the whole question of whether or not we need women mediators and what the role of women um, as mediators would be uh, within mediation processes themselves. <coughs> and as Catherine said, I, I sort of came to this through noticing a gap that, um, and largely from working here in the, in the Transitional Justice Institute, I was familiar with the, the literature and, and the policy work that was happening on women in mediation. And at the same time, I was working in a mediation organisation surrounded by a lot of women and I started to try and join the dots between the two. I know that there are lots of women in mediation so why are we saying there aren't enough? And so I started reading the policy documents and, and started noticing recurring themes in terms of why it's important to include women um, but also the fact that persistently the policy documents weren't talking about women as mediators. Often they would expressly exclude it and say we're concerned with getting women's voices in there and with the sort of the gender content in there. Um, without looking at, at the aspect of mediator. Um, and that to me was interesting. Why, why were we not talking about women in the role of mediator and um, what impact would that have on thinking of women, peace and security um, overall if we looked at that particular category as well. But it also brings its own particular challenges um, because it's a slightly, well, it's not slightly different, it's a fundamentally different role normatively um, to be an advocate and someone who is, is a negotiating party in a peace process to be the person who is, is the mediator working within kind of the logics and the accepted um, the accepted ways of doing things in the mediation community 
So if this is the logic of women, peace and security, that participation and gender sensitivity will increase the improved outcomes, <coughs> then what I, what I wanted to look at then was um, what's the logic of mediation and do these two work together? Uh, and if not, why not? So um, for those not as familiar with mediation, and this in itself is a field that is enjoying really a resurgence in interest. We're seeing a lot of interest in mediation uh, promoted internationally, and we're seeing that trickling down into a professionalised mediation support community as well at the, the regional, the sub-state, and, and um, sometimes at the grassroots level as well. So it's a field in flux a little bit too, and the question of, of women, peace and security, the inclusion of women per se, and also then the role of women mediators is all in the mix with this development of, of mediation as a field of policy and practice as well. So this, uh, in 2012, the United Nations, uh, as part of this move towards uh, professionalising uh, the field of, of mediation, produced its guidance for effective mediation, in which it tries to set out uh, sort of a definition of what mediation is when it's initiated and run by uh, the United Nations, uh, but also then some core principles that would guide uh, lead mediators and mediation support actors in designing these processes. So this is the core definition really that we're working with now, that mediation is a process whereby a third party assists two or more conflict parties um, with their consent to prevent, manage or resolve a conflict by helping them to develop mutually acceptable agreements. Okay? So this is the core of it. And you can see in there um, the emphasis, particularly on, on the parties themselves, on the element of consent, which is reiterated with helping them to develop mutually acceptable agreements. Okay? And this is the foundation of mediation. And so to achieve this then, in terms of how we deliver um, th this goal in international processes, there are a number of, of key principles. Oh, this one has transitions. Okay. <laughs> and each of these linked to... <laughs> Sorry, I edit that out. <laughs> and each of these is linked to the idea of best practice and, and professional support um, that actors at various different levels can provide to, to parties uh, to a mediation process and ways that you can try and ensure the effectiveness. So preparedness uh, is a fairly basic one, your conflict analysis that you would do in advance, the getting to know the parties, the, the um, dynamics that are going on between the parties um, and the various uh, different <coughs> aspects and iterations of the conflict, what's happening, where, who, who's influential, for example. And all of that would be expected to be done in advance of engaging and designing a mediation process. The second one is consent, core one, uh, that mediation is fundamentally a voluntary process. So whether that's done um, in terms of domestic mediation between neighbours and disputes over bins, for example, in family mediation, trying to separate out um, divorce proceedings, for example, uh, whether it's done in, uh, in relation to business and commercial transactions, or whether it happens in international peace mediation, consent is the, the, um, the core feature that holds mediation and the idea of mediation as separate from a legal process. That's what holds it together. Okay? So mediation only works uh, conceptually if it is consensual, if all of the parties there agree to it and agree to the terms and agree to what is, is being discussed. And the withdrawal of consent by one party effectively will collapse the mediation process because once the process uh, doesn't enjoy the consent or the, the support of the parties, then mediation is no longer sustainable. Uh, so the third one then is impartiality. 
Okay. So mediation is the uh, the intervention of an impartial third party. So a party that, in its purest sense and in an ideal world, doesn't have um, a, an interest or a vested political stake in the conflict. So it's not negotiation where one party has got something that they're trying to achieve and the other party has got a, a counter position. The third party in, in mediation is meant to be impartial. And the use of the term impartial is deliberate and it's in contrast to what previously used to be talked about as neutrality. You know, that the mediator was neutral as between the parties. So increasingly there is a sort of an acknowledgement that nobody's neutral, everybody brings their own values and their own assumptions, but that the mediator will try their best to be, and importantly, will be perceived by each of the conflict parties to be impartial between them. Some international mediation organisations now prefer the term omnipartiality, so that they're everybody's friend, and everybody feels like the mediator is working for them. Okay? Um, but that's, that's not in United Nations discourse yet, so we'll continue with impartiality. At least that the, the parties believe that, or they will acknowledge that even though you're working with both sides, that you're not supporting one at the expense of the other. So inclusivity. Um, this one, uh, this is really where the, most of the talk in women, peace and security comes in. How do we increase the number of women um, in peace processes through the lens of inclusivity and through the device of inclusivity? How do we make sure that processes are broadened out beyond the traditional model of a negotiation between two warring parties, armed actors usually, power brokers? Um, and how do we make sure that it is inclusive of a broader range of people and also a broader range of issues um, that are going to be discussed? Okay? And inclusivity is, is gradually developing its own normative character. It, it works across thematic regimes. So women, peace and security, religious actors, indigenous actors, uh, youth, peace and security, trade unions. And there's a good degree of read across in terms of the campaigning and the techniques that are used to try and make sure that the, the range of, of people that are included is broadened out. Uh, we also see it across different um, architectures within the United Nations. So uh, within the uh, peace building and uh, the peace and security architecture, inclusivity is there. It's equally then being brought in across um, the development um, architecture as well. So where you were seeing different UN actors engaging in conflict dynamics and in mediation at different levels, inclusivity crosses those um, institutional silos. Uh, and there's a whether it's effective or not is another question, but there's certainly within the, the reports and within the, the paperwork uh, an attempt to draw that in. Okay. So um, the acknowledgement that it needs to be broader than simply brokering deal between warring parties. Uh, national ownership. Again, this one links to consent in that it's meant to be that the, uh, and to inclusivity, that the process of mediation um, is owned by um, those who are um, the subject to the conflict, affected by the conflict, and those who are going to be responsible for the outcome as well. Okay? So not something that is inflicted on a country um, from above by the United Nations or by other regional actors, uh, but that, that's something that's truly owned by and shared um, by those within the country. Uh, international law and normative framework, because it's here where we start to see something of a conceptual clash between um, international law and normative <coughs> frameworks in places and key principles of consent, impartiality and national ownership. Okay. Um, so women, peace and security is clearly a normative framework. It's one of those which uh, the United Nations says that mediators need to take account of and, and need to be cognizant of when they're designing and delivering their processes and when they're deciding whether they're going to ratify agreements or not. 
Um, but we have other ones in terms of international criminal law and um, the extent to which uh, certain, uh, certain issues can be on the table or not, for example. And so for the purists in the mediation community, this unduly restricts the political nature of mediation uh, because it's, it all of a sudden introduces uh, things that might not necessarily be the priorities uh, or be uh, consistent with what the conflict parties are, are hoping to discuss. And then uh, finally, coherence, coordination and complementarity is becoming increasingly imp important as we have a growing and more diverse community of mediation support actors, uh, private diplomacy organisations, regional actors, state actors, um, that there is a very real risk of um, fragmentation within mediation, different understandings between actors of what mediation is and what it's meant to achieve, uh, different approaches, and then the ability of conflict parties to play off actors uh, between themselves. You know, sometimes this is visible in, in the, the big hotels. You know, one day the, the parties are talking to one private diplomacy organisation, the next day they're kind of talking with another one, and who's going to get them the best deal, who's going to pretty much do what they want to do. So the parties aren't stupid, you know, they know that this is happening. They know that there's kind of uh, prestige and status and funding to be had from being the ones engaging um, with, with the parties. Um, and so this is, is necessary to try and um, <laughs> to, to try and avoid some of the difficulties of, um, of coordination between actors, particularly um, to streamline your processes. Okay. So these are the, the principles that the United Nations um, have articulated as uh, core uh, for process design and for any UN mediation teams um, designing processes. Okay. Right. Uh, and so within this, I'm going to move on to women mediators then. In amidst the, uh, the series of women, peace and security resolutions, we do from the outset, from 1325, have specific commitments made to women mediators. And so they're much less talked about um, in the literature than those around participation and uh, um, mechanisms for, for, for including women in, uh, in mediation. But they are there. So uh, from 1325, um, the Secretary General is encouraged to appoint more women to pursue good offices on his behalf. So good offices being um, the, the device or the function by which mediators or, or envoys are appointed. Um, so from 1889, nine years later, stressing the need to ensure women are appropriately appointed at high level mediators and within mediation teams. Um, and 21-22 then, um, re reiterating calls uh, to appoint women to high-level mediation posts and to include them in mediation teams. Okay. So we have an underlying acknowledgement going through the resolutions that there simply aren't enough women uh, rising through the ranks in relation to mediation and we're not seeing enough. It's a, it's a, undoubtedly a very masculine professional environment. It's reflected in the way some of the business is done and reflected in the composition of teams and also then um, in the, even the visual. If you Google um, UN mediator in Google Images, it's, it's <laughs> it tells a story, shall we say. <laughs> okay, and, and so um, there's a, a need to, to try and work around this. Um, so to go back then to mediation itself, are people familiar with the idea of multi-track mediation? No. So this effectively 
Ironically, now that it's really kind of really being used um, in policy circles, it's starting to be questioned around whether this is um, the best model for mediation. At the moment, this is what's being used by governments, by international organisations, uh, by mediation support organisations. Um, and this is derived from work done by John Paul Lederach, who in fact was very influential in establishing mediation here in Northern Ireland as a means of um, responding to deep social division. Um, from his model of building sustainable peace. And what he says effectively is that peace can't only be made um, at the top levels, it can't only be made at political levels. You've got to have this right down through all of the different levels of society. Um, so from your very grassroots uh, and your grassroots community organising and grassroots leadership, right up to the top leadership, to the political and in some cases then um, where you've got international interest and international initiatives in mediation that one won't work without the other. There needs to be this um, organic, if you like, system of addressing conflict. And this is now known um, as multi-track because each of these different levels has been assigned a track number um, and we're able to break it down more or less. You know, there's some, um, some fluidity between them, but we're able to more or less map on what type of actors and what type of issues we see in different types of mediation processes. So track one there is high level negotiation. This is where you've got government representatives, for example, where you would have, um, if you're going to have an international organization or a regional organization involved, this is where they'll be. Okay, so these are the high level processes in the fancy hotels in the capitals um, where people come and, and sit around a table and, and discuss. Um, but they are governmental in nature and people are there as representatives of either the government or of pol opposition political parties. Um, armed opposition groups, for example, are the, the type of um, groups who tend to be involved in these types of talks. And they're the ones you see on the news as well. Um, track two, just to skip one for a minute, is uh, middle range leadership, but it has a, a fundamentally different function. Um, so track two is meant to encourage creativity. Okay, so it engages below, at the sub-state level, it engages those in powers of um, influence, more so than authority, but influence and authority, um, religious leaders, for example, um, business leaders, academics, intellectuals. Um, and the idea around track two is, is that it's a dialogue and, and problem solving in a level where you're able to bring people together in their personal capacities to try and um, think about creative solutions to the problem. So if you've got a particular blockage in the track one process, for example, you know, at track two, people are more free to think creatively because it's not, it's not formal. You know, you're not going to bind anybody by coming up with solutions at this level. Um, and that it's, it works in support of a track one process uh, because it tries to keep things moving and it tries to keep thinking going, even where you've got political reasons for talks breaking down. So even where one party storms out and says we can't possibly be expected to negotiate with them in these circumstances, since so a resurgence of violence by armed actors, for example, well, no, after that we can't, you know, um, attract to it, can still keep going. And you would hope then that not only is the substance of what they're talking about important at that level, but also the fact that they are talking. Okay. So the, the ability to maintain trust and confidence between opposing people with opposing political views at that level um, and the ability to, to maintain some form of contact so that you don't end up undoing any work that has been done previously so that um, communication keeps going and there, and there keeps uh, some form of mechanism of, of maintaining trust and keeping a process on track. 
Um, and the third one then, so track 1.5 is in between these two. Okay, so um, the ways in which track two actors are able to influence track one, for example, the communication channels between, um, and a lot of the sort of sometimes the back channel work as well. So those who aren't necessarily involved in the very top track one processes, but have access to those spaces, but similarly have an ear to the ground um, on track two or track three, and who are able to, to bridge those, those gaps a little bit. Um, so it's informal, but it often engages your governmental leadership, for example, and those who would be um, influential in the, in the top talks. Um, track three then is, is grassroots leadership. Okay. Um, this, this is where we start to see, the, this is where the institutional divides become interesting actually because there is a lot of talk, particularly in the Women, Peace and Security, around track three mediators, um, increasingly track three mediators. And this is a, a sort of a bringing into the, the field of mediation, bringing within kind of the, the walls of mediation, uh, a lot of work that's done in communities. Um, so work that would be um, sometimes referred to more as peace building, community development work, um, women's grassroots activism as well, um, increasingly talked about within this. So anywhere, but also with its own, there is a separate strand of humanitarian mediation as well, that's fundamentally different from what happens at track one, which is political negotiation. Um, where you're working within communities to try and improve humanitarian conditions, to try and uh, de-escalate conflict, to try and sort of pause violence uh, within uh, sort of isolated uh, communities or areas um, and not isolated in a geographical sense, but in terms of you can make a difference in, in one region even while a war is ongoing in others. Okay, um, And so the grassroots is, is really track three and increasingly track three is talked about as mediation and, and, and a number of the, the networks and the, the initiatives that have been established in recent years to try and enhance women's visibility in mediation. There has been a, a significant emphasis on trying to make track three work visible, so trying to understand it as mediation and to allow the insight from track three to filter into discussions in track two and track one and um, because this is where we start to see um, most of the barriers then that women are um, experiencing in, in relation to access to mediation um, so that they are working uh, quite successfully and effectively in track three but that there's a, a very definite ceiling at track three that once you try and make that move from kind of the grassroots or humanitarian work into what's defined as political work um, that that there's um, significant resistance uh, uh, arises to that. So at all of these levels mediation is traditionally political and non-normative Okay, so even at, at humanitarian and from humanitarian to the top political levels, it's uh, intended that the parties are in control of the process, that they consent to being there, and that um, it's up to them what issues are on the agenda and what's going to be discussed. Okay, um, while Women, Peace and Security uh, has put a significant emphasis on the importance of having women in those spaces and as a normative requirement you know that that the, the validity or the legitimacy of mediation depends on inclusion and, and having women included for example it has not been embraced in the same way on the mediation side of the field so the the literature that analyzes so the, the literature from the mediation field that looks at gender looks at it through an entirely different lens. Okay? So they look at that, what are the fundamental norms of mediation, what's the logic of mediation in terms of what we do and what we're trying to achieve, and where does gender fit within this. And 
To date, the analysis has come down on gender as a non-core norm of mediation. So where, uh, and sort of the outworking of that is that where gender conflicts with consent, for example, that consent will trump gender. Um, and this is uh, mostly cited as where parties are unwilling to, uh, or reluctant, shall we say, to have women involved or to uh, where gender is going to challenge particularly um, strong social norms around women's place and women's participation in public life per se. There you've got an overt clash between what the parties are willing to put on the table um, and what the norms are saying they need to do. Um, and so inclusion then takes its second place to consent, but it becomes conditional as well. Um, and in this case, then we end up with quite an important role for the mediator in terms of their ability to um, put pressure on the parties to try and widen out the talks and to uh, try and work with them on the question of inclusion and consent and the, the ability of the mediator to put these uh, issues on the table. And we know from experience that some are more amenable to this than others. Those that are amenable to it will come up with, uh, with their own ways and their own devices of doing it. So quite famously, Stefan de Mistura and for all of the, uh, in the Syrian process was faced with this exact dilemma. The parties don't regard gender as important, um, that they, they didn't want to bring women to the table. Um, and his response was that, well, you don't want to bring them, but you can't stop me. And that was uh, what led to the creation of the Women's Advisory Board for Syria. And there are criticisms of the Women's Advisory Board as a mechanism, the fact that it's outside of the talks, etc. Um, it really it encompasses a lot of the critiques that we're coming to. Uh, but he attempted to do something and was open to the gender advice and open uh, to the idea that there needed to be women's participation in that process and the need to find creative ways to do that. Okay. On the other hand, other mediators have been much less willing to do so. Others, uh, this. So I have developed this series of graphics. Um, and it came from, so the, the first, just to take a step back into the research process on this for a moment. So the first place I looked was, um, why are we not talking about um, women mediators when I know that women are active mediators and we're doing a lot of this? So we started um, looking into the institutional structures that support women in mediation, and this is where I found this big institutional divide in the UN, even between the definition of what mediation is and where it happens. You know, so mediation is the high level, the envoy, the political negotiations that happen at track one and, and track two in support of, of mediation at the top. And then the distinction um, with uh, UN women primarily um, trying to advocate for and support women who were involved um, at community level and to try and have those voices heard in, in the institutional conversations. So that no matter sort of what level of support might have been given by UN women and other non-governmental organisations, for example, to women working on the ground, once it became a political process, once sort of the governments or the international organisations became involved, that, that was excluded. Okay, there, was, there didn't appear to be any mechanism of communication between the two. Um, and that, that led me then to this question about uh, the person of the mediator themselves. So we started to divide out the different roles that, that we had. So the first is, um, and the one where most of the women peace and security analysis happens is around advocacy. Um, so the diagram, the Venn diagram of the participation and the gender sensitivity tends to distill into this group of women 
who are um, feminist or have expertise in, in gender, okay, so are gender advocates in terms of making sure that uh, gender sensitive process design, for example, happens, or making sure that um, gendered issues are on the agenda in mediation. Um, that, you can see why it happened, but it's caused problems for women mediators specifically, because it associates women's participation with a particular substantive agenda that you're going to bring to the table um, that is difficult to reconcile um, for women in the role of mediator. Okay? So if you think of the training of these women, if you think of the principles of mediation, this is the way they're trained. They're trained that first and foremost, mediation is, is consent-based, that it's voluntary and that it is led by the parties. They're trained that you don't bring your own agenda to mediation and that you don't bring things to the table that the parties themselves haven't brought to the table. Okay, And this is um, particularly at track three and track two. Okay, um, This is influential. So all of a sudden then, where for women, trying to get their heads around and engage with the question of women mediators, they've got the choice of either, okay, yes, my role as a woman mediator is to advance kind of sensitivity to gender or to try and make sure that women specifically are advanced in mediation, or, and more commonly, to step back and go, oh, no, 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 that's not my role. Um, I'm a mediator, I don't do this. And to, to really try and distance themselves um, from the whole gender thing, per se, so they don't get put into the women box. Okay, and, and that's um, the difficulty that's been caused by the congruence of these two, participation and, and gender sensitivity, that's particularly acute for the women mediators. Um, so, but a track, so what I wanted to develop then was how, how do women mediators understand their own role and how does it interface with this question of gender? Is there something, is there a way of working around the, dif the difficulty caused by the um, pretty much uh, persistent conflation of women with gender in this field? And so uh, we looked, started looking at then at where women were active and the types of things that they were doing um, and was coming up with some really nice uh, quotes in terms of women's own experiences of, of being mediators that I think speak not only to the question of kind of their own subjective influences and, and the kind of the narrative of women as mediators, but they map really neatly on to some of these institutional questions as well around the type of mediation that's happening and, and the barriers that people face as a result. So we started to develop um, these graphics as, um, as a way of visually representing um, what was coming out of the research. Um, so you can see here, we've sort of modelled a little bit the that what's perceived as a hierarchy of the tracks. You know, that track one is the top, it's the most important, it's really, you know, kind of the most smart men that do the track one. Um, and then at the bottom, you've got all of this little army of support workers going on underneath, making sure that it doesn't all fall apart. Um, so that just, that happened a little bit, but we're also representing kind of the predominance of women in track three, okay? Um, and then the decreasing numbers of women as you go further up the tracks, and then a white male, middle to upper class, um, with a very fancy accent at the top, who holds the um, who holds kind of the keys to access of mediation. So, um, in track three, 
the, you know, we hear often the same examples of, of women's mediation work in track three. So negotiating humanitarian access, for example, um, dealing with conflicts within communities, um, trying to uh, prevent young men from becoming involved in violence um, and settling disputes where they arise within communities. Okay, so these are well cited and, and kind of well understood examples um, of women's um, mediation work. Now, since the emphasis on mediation has has uh, kind of really strengthened and, and taken place in the last couple of years, there's been a tendency to try and encompass all of women's work within this because there's funding for it, because there's support for it at the moment, to encompass a whole lot of things within this definition of women mediator. Okay, <laughs> at the risk of contradicting myself, in the original research, I said that it's the mediation definition is, is too narrow. It's excluding a lot of this work that's being done by women um, in humanitarian spaces and in community spaces, um, that some of it needs to be recognised as mediation because there are you know key skills and key insights that these women have that would be useful if they were fed up, particularly into the track two talks. Um, what has happened is that it's almost gone nearly too far and that uh, you know, those who are um, kind of community organisers, uh, for example, or, or community development worker working are nearly having to frame their work as mediation to have it recognised. Okay. So that's a risk um, with it becoming like that. But nevertheless, we um, there are examples of women engaging in mediation um, in a quite clear and quite pure sense at that level. Um, track two then, here, this is an interesting one because uh, Track two, there's much less talk. So we've got statistics and studies on women in track one and, and the absence of them. So the famous UN women figure is 2%. Um, Karen Agastam's most recent work, um, she looks, she takes a slightly broader definition of women in, in track one processes. And she comes up with a figure of about 8% um, if you count in um, special representatives of security uh, of the Secretary General, for example. Um, the UN women, figure continues to be used, I think, because it's so stark. You know, it's an, it's an easy and infographics that really tells a story. Uh, the, the risk with it is that it's disputed um, with the mediation organisations. So it's very much a women, peace and security advocacy figure, that one. When you move into the, the mediation organisations and the Department of Political Affairs, particularly, they're taking um, a different view of what mediation is and where women are in these places, and the percentage is closer to eight. Now, that's still not an enormous increase, but nevertheless, it is an increase. But the other types of roles, um, women have been, in, in my research and experience, particularly good at bridging track, okay, track two and uh, track three. So being able to bring voices, and this is in, in domestic, and particularly here was where I was looking at, but they're good at getting voices into track two processes. And we see a predominance of women where there are most of them um, in formal mediation spaces is um, in advisory roles and expert roles. Okay, so helping uh, particularly educated women. Okay, so there is a, a so there's a sort of a social dynamic in terms of who gets heard and who doesn't, but uh, attract to educated women in expert and advisory roles. Um, in up at the top in track one at the very start, uh, very top, a different type of woman. Okay, so women who have come from <coughs> diplomatic backgrounds, international organisations, women that quite closely resemble their male counterparts as well. Okay, so um, and just a different professional formation, different professional understandings of what the job is. Okay, um, and at that level, less likely um, to be as as gender aware as the work that's happening in the, in the track three level. 
Um, and you can see that the, just as the, the type of, of work uh, differs, so the, um, the barriers that they face differ as well. Now, this is where I was going to show you. So I got this made into an interactive graphic so that if you were doing training with women themselves, you can click on, and it will be live hopefully in the next couple of weeks, but you can click on each of the women and it brings you into a separate page where you can explore kind of in their own words some of the barriers um, that they find working as women. So at the bottom, things like just a little, and they're, so they're printed in here, um, just a little girl, for example, that they're not, um, just that wee girl down the community centre, the diminishing of women's work, um, and sort of being, being infantilised, um, things like um, very, very practical barriers like childcare, and um, the added responsibilities in relation to the home. And you hear it quite often, you know, well, he didn't mind if I went out and did this, this my political work as long as the dinner was <laughs> ready, you know. And, um, so some of, some of those quotes are a bit there. As we get up to track two, we see things like um, expertise not being taken seriously, for example. Um, the assumption, and particularly strong uh, in relation to, to our Venn diagram of participation and gender sensitivity, um, the assumption that women at that level are only concerned with women's issues. And this is particularly difficult for women who find themselves given portfolios of gender inclusion and uh, women's issues, if you like, that the, the assumption that that's all they're there to speak on. And the difficulties even within some of these, um, the networks particularly, and the mechanisms set to try and enhance women's visual representation in peace processes, um, haven't found a way to tap into, for example, women security experts, women weapons experts, for example. They, they're the ones kind of standing out going, no, no, I don't want to be put in the women box, so therefore I'm going to actively resist, um, resist that. And also the fact that their work, particularly for mediators, is often behind the scenes work. It's not the high profile political work that's done at, at track one, where the, the men tend to lead and, and be on the television. Um, so the behind the scenes work, it's easy for it to be overlooked. And then when that work is successful, when it leads to something else, somebody else is able to come along and take the, the credit for that, which then undermines their own. Um, and at track one, um, they're up against deeply ingrained prejudices about what a mediator looks like and what qualities are needed. So things like gravitas and authority, um, and really a, a model of leadership from the front, you know, that it takes a strong personality, someone who's able to really kind of make these people um, uh, cooperate with them. Um, and so at different levels, the barriers are mapping on more or less to the nature of, of the job as well. And so for, the mediators at track three, even for the women in track one, the skills of track three don't necessarily look like the same skills as, as are needed at track one. And so the ability to, to bridge that then is, is called into question. So that the soft work of the peace building that's irrelevant then when you come to the hard work of the security and the political negotiation. Um, and so the, the difficulty then as well, I think, I mean, how long do I have? Um, so, so, so far, I think we haven't managed to establish very effective lines of communication between the women peace and security advocates on one side and the mediation community of support, uh, mediation support on on them on the other side. Kind of the, the fundamental communication of, of why women's participation and why gender is important um, is getting lost a little bit in, in the middle. But partly, it's it's because of the fundamental nature of mediation itself. And the need to think about how we frame 
women, peace and security and women's participation as something that's not contradictory to the fundamentals of mediation, something that enhances it and that's something that's complementary to it rather than something that's oppositional. And the difficulty is that often any group that's being included who are outside the traditional power structures are bringing a challenge to see things differently and to do things differently. And so the resistance is going to come from there anyway. And the difficulty um, then is that once you get up to the, to the top levels, um, the agenda is more or less set before anybody gets there. The opportunity to make a, a difference through giving your view or through being included um, in practical terms, whether you're simply not given enough time to speak, um, or um, in much more conceptual terms about what's on the agenda and what can be on the agenda. You know, so I think increasingly securitized mandates for mediators, um, problems established with reference to security, bolstered with reference to international law in terms of what can and can't happen, um, pressures even within mandates and security council resolutions to, um, to complete processes as quickly as possible or within certain time frames for example all put pressure that mean that it's, it's unappetising to open up bigger questions um, that uh, inclusion um, would, would bring to the table. And so the dilemma for women mediators within this then is do they subscribe to this? Do they sort of buy in to the system and hope that they rise through it in the way that it is? Um, or do they take the, the, um, the advocacy position? Do they overtly say, no, this isn't, you know, that this doesn't work? I mean, I think the, the reality for now is that the credentials um, of the mediator come from the ability to be impartial and the ability to be accepted by both parties. And so uh, strongly activist line um, is one that's viewed with, with suspicion from a mediation perspective for that reason. Um, but certainly we've found and we've started to try and look at where might there be a middle ground um, without essentializing women and saying, well, these are the kind of the caring and homely um, uh, characteristics that they might bring to the job. That what type of what type of person are we looking for in a mediator? What type of skills? And are those the skills that we see within the existing kind of pool of envoys, for example? And how might looking at those type of skills broaden out a little bit um, the, the field of people that we're looking at? Um, because I think that um, certainly what came out from the research here was that although the women mediators, they sort of confirmed what I suspected, that they didn't, they strongly rejected the idea that their job was to bring a normative agenda to mediation or that they would start from a particular position that might be in conflict with one party or the other. They were certainly more open to um, seeing um, the gendered aspects of the conflict, to naming it as such and to bringing it into the conversation. And if we go right back to the, the idea that, that there's a lot of discretion on the part of the mediator as to who they include and what they include on their agenda and at what point they include it, um, then if, if women are more likely to see or to be open to this, um, then, then the role is there without them actively bringing it themselves. You know, obviously subject to that this is not all women, it's more a question of gendered characteristics than it is of, of men versus women. You know, if we're looking, th there are some characteristics that tend to be um, more closely associated with women and more often found in women, like uh, emotional intelligence and empathy and things like those. But if we, if those are the characteristics that we're looking for, um, and then that, that's been sort of the, the way into that, that type of a conversation. So, um, I think just to sort of to conclude on that, that you know, I've 
looked at this from a number of different angles, but I, I still, still come back to the same place, which is the, the difficulties in communication. Um, I think the women, peace and security have at times been a bit tone deaf in terms of the mediation um, and their fundamental logics and what drives them. Mm. So the ability to try and speak their language even a little bit more, um, I think, is, is um, one avenue to be explored. But similarly, the mediation actors as well on, on the other side of the house and that uh, the need to take seriously um, some of the questions of um, the way that we do mediation and whether a formal conceptual of mediation that we have at the moment is sufficient given um, given the way things have, have changed since it was designed. Okay, very good. Thank you, Catherine. Thank you very much. Um, so we have uh, about half an hour for questions and answers. I'm sure there's quite a lot coming out of that. Um, you may also, I suppose, just to say a little bit about the um, empirical work that you did was involved mm. involved speaking to women mediators mm -hmm. um, here in, in Northern Ireland. So people may be interested in sort of finding out more about that as well. So. Okay, so I'll open the floor. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. yeah. super. Um, so uh, my name's Hannah Davis, and I'm a PhD student here, um, not in TJI, but um, I can never get the acronym policy, whatever. That's, That's the one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, I also worked at the UN for years, so I'm ah. very, a lot of what you say very much resonate. Um, I guess I'm kind of interested in, in your point about how to bridge that kind of women, peace, and security piece with the kind of mediation piece and I feel like one of the things that maybe they both have in common is that when you're dealing with the UN or you're dealing with this kind of track one <coughs> it's extremely state-centric and mm. it's extremely um, kind of elitist I mean as you said it's very much highly educated people it really is very exclusive and I think even within the women peace and security agenda it's very difficult to break through some of the kind of state-centric ways in which decisions are made or how things are organised and even just in terms of who count, what counts as national ownership and mm. what is the nation. I mean, these are things that are very pro problematic everywhere in the UN. And that's also, it seems to me, something where mediation also kind of has that same challenge mm. in trying to break through a very kind of, um, yeah, state-centric um, set, of, set of concerns and set of questions. And that may be an area where there could be some commonalities found between those two yeah, that, that's interesting because I think we've come to that a little bit in terms of um, particularly civil society government relationships that governments are the, in the centre, they're the ones really that hold the key to whether there is an effective communication and when I first started looking at this there was this wonderful triangulation of blame between, <laughs> um, you know, between the governments and, and the UN and the organisations around who was responsible for what you know and uh, so we've started we have started looking um, and particularly with the UK and with Italy um, around uh, the role of ambassadors and how mm. you get the ambassadors to take seriously civil society and to platform civil society in a way that then gives them access to those spaces that they might not otherwise have access to and there are difficulties with that as well because you know particularly for some civil society organizations they don't want to be um, associated with or seem to be taking support from governments if their role is to be sort of critical of government but in others in others it, it's proved to be quite a fruitful um, avenue for discussion because um, we then have the ambassadors coming back and saying well what can we do give us something specific that we can do and then what we've been able to say is well you know <laughs> here are three things that you can do yeah. 
So yeah, because so the, the role of them in the middle seems to be quite key, and they're the, the actors that it's most difficult to get information on. I, I find anyway that the, the policies of the international organisations and then the civil society organisations are, are quite open, but the, uh, the government, it's nearly impossible, unless you get a person in the room who works in the government, at which point they get grilled for the whole session to try and find out, well, how does it work? What do we need to do to communicate and to make those links? Yeah. Yeah, my feeling would be they're well, they're still separate at the moment. Yeah, um, because the women mediators question has only really taken off in the last few years, um, and still the mediators tend to be, I mean, and even down to women who are quite junior within mediation teams internalise the logic of, of what it is they're doing and how it works. You know, and this it extends to very um, gendered working practices and things like that that are probably responsible for the, the lack of women at the top. But so far, we, we haven't um, seen that. Um, what, what we've seen more clearly is, is maybe the need to look more closely at um, the relationship between programming on women's participation in domestic politics and uh, women's participation in processes, because um, we're finding fundamental differences of experience between women who are able to participate as members of political parties who have that election as their legitimacy versus women who come from civil society where their legitimacy and their representativeness is, is challenged. But so far we haven't seen a link between mediators and parties. Although we're, my, my big question and my sort of little hope is that more women mediators would be more open to, yeah. It's just, it's then how you get the women in there, like how, how do they arrive at the table? Is it via election or is it through other mechanisms? Or could it be through yeah. pressure that Oh yeah, that yeah. So um, yeah, that would be lovely if we could get a critical mass of, of conflict parties <laughs> yes. who were able to yeah, say, actually, right. we don't want men at this. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, it just turns it on its head entirely. That's good. We've got to get to that point. <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe. Um, yeah, because certainly if it's linked to what the parties think is appropriate, then yeah. if the parties think, yeah. Yeah. Establishing norms that are essential boundaries to these processes, right? And yeah. just kind of, um, so sort of, I'm sort of wondering about, I mean, you're now the person on this, like, what is the way forward? <laughs> <laughs> so what I would say is, what I would say is that this is um, a microcosm of the bigger debate around the role of norms in mediation. Um, and I think that it's, it's actually really difficult to know because five years ago, I would have said that probably the normative is, is what's going to shape it. Mm. But now with this kind of challenge to multilateralism, mediation, there's mm. a bit of a concern that mediation is being used as a proxy for foreign policy intervention. Um, 
um, you know, so Russia offering its services as a mediator in Syria, for example, um, that where we're having difficulty in the Security Council reaching consensus on other forms of intervention um, in conflict, mediation is, is enjoying a roaring kind of <laughs> resurgence um, because it's less normatively bound right. and um, there is still significant resistance amongst um, the professional community of mediators that backs up kind of what states like obviously because they're coming from diplomacy yeah, yeah, and it's seen yeah. as pragmatic yeah. rather right. than as right. something uh, that's norm driven right. where you end up with clashes. Um, so I, I think that I, I don't know for now what the way forward is. I think that we need to understand um, definitely the impact of this on mediation itself. So I think understanding particularly securitization and the way that international law is, is absolutely framing, but not necessarily in the way that we want it to frame mediation. Um, it's kind of setting out parameters of what's on the table that largely excludes um, transformative ideas of, of mediation and opening up new questions around how things are, are divided. And so what we might see is actually a move backwards. So it's almost sort of increased strategizing around avoiding these normative frameworks altogether. Yeah, yeah. So I'm afraid that's not a very cheerful end to. Okay, well that's probably an appropriate note to conclude on. Probably <laughs> really <laughs> fitting. Okay, well thank you so much, Catherine. That was really rich and very, very, um, very, very interesting. I certainly learned a lot, and to thank you in the conventional way. Um, and also just to remind those of you who are uh, visitors that we have this is part of an ongoing series. So please do um, keep in touch for the other um, seminar series events. Thank you, Kathy. Thank you for having me. <laughs>